When I was just eight years old, I had to testify in court against my paternal grandfather for sexual assault. I remember walking through the courtroom to the witness box and seeing my grandpa's cowboy hat on the table where he sat with his two high-powered attorneys. There was the clock on the wall that I stared at while I answered questions that no eight-year-old should ever have to answer. I still recall the disappointing outcome of him being found not guilty. My name is Kelly Wallace. I am a writer and sexual assault survivor. I've undergone decades of therapy to overcome what I experienced, and writing is a part of my healing process. In this podcast, we will talk with other writers who have also overcome sexual violence. Their stories are often neglected, but to me, they are an inspiration, and I'm excited to be able to share them with you. Welcome to Recognize Our Power. The topics we are discussing are sensitive and do come with a trigger warning. Please take care of yourself. If you are in need of resources, please visit our website, www.recognizeourpower.com, and click on the resources page. If I couldn't write about this, if I couldn't own this, if I couldn't make it mine and make it public, I could not like be a whole human being. You know, it's not, it, like I said, it was non-negotiable. I had to do it. So I had to do it to live, <laughs> you know? Welcome to the Recognize Our Power podcast, a podcast for readers, writers, sexual assault survivors, and beyond. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. Thank you for listening and subscribing. I'm so excited to dive in and introduce you to a wide variety of writers who are themselves survivors of sexual violence. I'm grateful to be speaking to our guest today, Janine Olette. Her memoir, The Part That Burns, shatters the silence on childhood sexual abuse and its long aftermath while celebrating the author's ultimate reclamation of her own humanity in all its wildness. The Part That Burns was a 2021 Kirkus Best 100 indie book and a finalist for the Next Generation Indie Book Award in women's literature with starred reviews from Kirkus and Publishers Weekly. Alette's essays and fiction appear widely in literary journals, including Los Angeles Review of Books, Narrative, Master's Review, North American Review, and more, as well as in her popular Writing in the Dark newsletter and instant Substack bestseller. She teaches writing at the University of Minnesota and through the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop, Catapult and Elephant Rock, a creative writing program she founded in 2012. She's working on her first novel. Find her online at janineolette.com. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to dive in and have a very important conversation about your book. For our listeners that aren't familiar with you, can you share a little bit about your background and growing up yours? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm also really excited to be here. I think that 
in I, I've done a lot of events around this book. Mm-hmm. It's been out for two years now, but this is the first time I've had the opportunity to speak with someone in a really specific way about the book's content. And I guess kind of from mm-hmm. that advocacy angle, as well as from the literary angle. And I'm actually really excited about that. Me too. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. Yeah. So yeah, for, for those who haven't read the book or don't know me, I, you know, I live in Minneapolis. I was born in Duluth, Minnesota. It's a very rugged place mm-hmm. on the North Shore of Lake Superior, and that features in the book. And then spent a chunk of my childhood in the state of Wyoming, which is also a very rugged place, you know, kind of in the shadow mm-hmm. of Casper Mountain out there in Wyoming, and then ended up back in Minneapolis in my teen years and have been in Minneapolis ever since. And I that captures a little bit of the peripatetic nature of my childhood, but it was actually much more than that. Like we moved almost once a year and I did a spent my last years of adolescence Mm -hmm. in foster care. My younger sister Mm -hmm. also grew up in foster care. So there was a lot of, you know, and and the book details this, but there was a lot of upheaval, a lot of dysfunction in my family of origin. And so I think that by the time I was nine years old, I knew that I wanted to be a writer and I knew that I found something in the process of putting language together. I, I know I couldn't have named that. I couldn't right. have spoken about it that way as a child. I just knew I wanted to be a writer. And I think what I was finding mm. was agency, you know, in in making sense of mm. a chaotic life through being able to actually make shapes out of words, make things happen yeah, with words. Definitely. Yeah. In your beautiful memoir, The Part That Burns, you write about a childhood filled with a lot of violence, sexual abuse, moves to different states, and your mom's seems like a rotating cast of boyfriends. How did you approach such difficult material? What was that experience like for you? So I I, I want to thank you for that question. I think it's yeah. a really important one. And this book came out in 2021 when I was two. <laughs> yeah. And you know, have to do that math. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I began writing it in earnest. People say, how long did it take to write the book? You know, and it's like the the, the truest answer is sort of like my whole life. Mm-hmm. But technically speaking, you know, the years in which I was actually engaged in building what I knew was a manuscript that would become a book mm-hmm. that started in around 2015. Gotcha. So, you know, it was about six years or so between Mm -hmm. when I started working on that and when it actually hit bookshelves. And prior to that, the reason that I hadn't written this book or the reason that I wasn't engaged in what I understood was a manuscript that would become a book Mm -hmm. was because my attempts to write about this material just didn't work. And Mm -hmm. I've been writing, I started publishing my work when I was 21, I think Mm -hmm. is how old I was when my first essays got picked up by magazines. So it wasn't that I didn't know how to write. And then from that time, from 21 onward, I've been writing and editing and publishing and teaching writing in some way, shape or form. But this stuff, I couldn't find a way to make it live up to my vision for it because I wanted it to be artful. I wanted it to be beautiful. And I wanted it to be something that despite the difficult nature of the material mm. would be 
a gift for a reader and not a burden. Yeah. And so I, you know, there were just a lot of things that I had to learn as a writer specifically. And I think there was a lot of things I had to live also, Yeah, <laughs> you know, as a human before mm-hmm. I could do it. But very specifically from a craft of writing perspective, there were things that I needed to be able to do that I didn't know how to do until I hit that time in my early middle 40s. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So when you are writing the part that burns, did you have to take, I guess I'm thinking more of like the the early material, the really hard sexual abuse material. Did you have to take a lot of breaks when you were writing that? What was your what was your process for writing that? Did you have a, a routine? Tell, tell our listeners a little bit about what that experience was like for you. Yeah. Ultimately, it's tied into the last question, which mm-hmm. is in relation to those techniques that I, I really needed to yeah. be able to make this material successful. And for me, I found those in the form of some pretty non-traditional literary constraints. Mm. So, you know, the book is a little bit experimental. It's hybrid. You know, it's not linear. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this DNA, this imprint of a certain kind of playfulness that I had to bring to the material Mm -hmm. was, was for me key. It was the way that I found my way into this child narrator who Mm. we find in some of the chapters of the book where I'm dealing with early life material. It's kind of being filtered through the voice of this young girl. And that in itself presented a kind of constraint. Because, you know, she she's a version of me who didn't know the implications of what was happening to her, didn't have a name for it, didn't have a you know, a thought process around it. It was just a thing that happened, just like other things that happened. Exactly. And so approaching it from that perspective with those limitations helped a lot. Mm. And and actually just um, one of the things I found in the way that I was working with constraints, and so one of the early chapters in the book is called Tumbleweeds, and it takes place in Wyoming, mm-hmm. and it's told in fragments. Mm-hmm. And several sections of it are with this child narrator. But one of the rules I made for myself, so an example of a constraint for the writers who are going to be listening, I I gave myself things that I had to include. Mm -hmm. Like I had to include the history of the Western jackalope, which is this (laughs) curiosity. And I had to include bits of, I think it's in that one where where there's part, no, that's Four Dogs, maybe five. It was the Jimmy Carter's inauguration address. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. But the botany of the tumbleweed I had to include Mm. in this one. So I made like these rules for myself of things that I had to get into the piece. And I remember when I was getting close and I knew that it was good, you know, and like this is a thing for writers like, you know, when you're like, hey, actually, this is working. I have something here. And I remember talking to my older daughter, Sophie, who was a reader for the piece, you know, Mm -hmm. she was an adult by that time and and admitting, you know, actually because we both knew it was good. And I was like, I'm having fun yeah. writing this. You know, and I, it wasn't like I needed to set it down and take breaks. It was like the actual process was really, and it was invigorating. There was, though, like a, a flip side of it where yeah. I remember also another moment during that time period turning to my husband and saying, wow, it's really disorienting because that world 
is feeling really real. Like it, it, it felt so vivid and so real and so close in yes. a way that it hadn't for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so both of those things were true. Yeah, at Definitely. the same time. Definitely. I know that handling a child narrator can be because there isn't a lot of interior life. And so I loved that you incorporated the jackalope and Carter's inauguration into that to add that that layer. Of yeah, this. it's like it creates instant metaphor. Yes. You know, like you it just it. You know, when I teach writing, it's like when you put two things next to each other, if you put an apple and a knife next to each other, you know, we instantly (laughs) fill in the gap in our imagination. And so working with juxtaposition that way, when you place these things, and it was like the Carter inauguration address was just wild because the kinds of things he was saying in that address and then what was happening in this little girl's life. it, It just for me, it was just, yeah, it really was extraordinary how that spliced. And similarly with the jackalope and my stepfather, mm. you know, some of these mythologies and some of mm. the stories of the jackalope, just like I couldn't have come up with anything like that from this little girl's interior life, like you said, because yeah. she didn't she didn't know how ominous and wrong and destructive mm-hmm. these forces were. She knew she that it was scary and unhappy for her, but you know, when you're six or seven years old, you have no context. Definitely. So kind of jumping ahead a little bit, later in the book, we see you going to support groups for incest survivors. Did you have other healing methodologies along the way? Or was this the first place that you found the support outside of yourself for getting help with what had happened to you? Mm. Well, that chapter, where that happens, this is actually, I was, I think, like about 22 years old or right. so, 22 or 23, pregnant with my second child, mm-hmm. having a lot of this trauma resurfacing, you know, really, I feel really strongly like it was just coming straight up through my body, you know, yeah. as this narrator becomes embodied through pregnancy and breastfeeding. Mm. And and that support group. So I sought out a therapist. The therapist recommended the support group. Right. The support group was actually really traumatic. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a place that I mm-hmm. found help or support. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't in any way want to discourage anyone from looking for a support group. I think that there were, a, you know, a convergence of factors that made that true for me at that time. And one was that, you know, I was really scared. I was pregnant. I was young. And I had a ton of shame around what had happened to me as a child and had done very little. I thought I had done processing around it, but I really hadn't. Mm. And the, I think that the things that were being said and happening in the support group were really scary mm-hmm. for me at that time. And I was seeing, you know, I, for me, I think it was looking at a circle of women, most of whom were like 20 years older than I was or more, mm-hmm. and like in so much pain and, yeah. you know, there's the scene where the one a woman makes a threat in the group. And mm-hmm. I think it was really scary on a number of levels. I stopped mm-hmm. going. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I just it wasn't what I needed at that time. Yeah. But I did find other ways and other forms of healing. And one thing that was super important for me at that. Well, there's two two books that really changed the trajectory of mm-hmm. my whole life. I feel mm-hmm. like and one was 
Laura Davis and Ellen Bass's book, The Courage to Heal. Yes. I had never read anything like it. I didn't really understand that people were writing books for people like me. It was very, my therapist probably recommended it. I don't know. There was no Amazon back then. Yeah. So I don't know how I would have found it. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was life-changing. And I actually last year had the opportunity to do an event with Laura Davis. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. So like, it's so wild to have to come full circle that way. Yeah. Um, and then similarly, Dorothy Allison's book, Bastard Out of Carolina, was equally important to me for different reasons. And in that case, again, you know, remembering I'm very young at this time, I'm mm -hmm. in my early 20s, yeah. really sheltered. I barely had graduated high school because of the tumult and the foster care. So yeah. there's a lot of things I hadn't been exposed to. Yeah. Including like a lot of the great literature, right? So for me, reading that book and seeing that somebody made something just gorgeous out of like a pile of horror yeah you know it's like I couldn't do it at that time mm -hmm. but just knowing that it could be done yeah yeah it was so inspiring and it was healing and I can't tell you how many times I've read that book and then had the opportunity to work with Dorothy Allison at yeah. Tim House you know like in 2016 and she's the one who looked at the chapter four dogs maybe five which is what I was workshopping yeah. at, with her. And she said, you know, this is a book, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And I said, well, I have these pieces. You like, I've been publishing stories that are related to this, but, and she said, oh, that's how it works. Yeah. That's how I wrote Bastard. <laughs> and I was like, you did? Okay. All right. Okay. This is, this is what I need to hear. So yeah, I think reading for some of us, just mm -hmm. having your life and your story reflected to you from people who have survived and not just survived, but thrived yeah. and led vibrant lives in the wake of that kind of trauma. Mm -hmm. And then also for me, uh, motherhood just was a really big part of my healing because the physicality yeah. of birth, breastfeeding and caregiving for babies and small children brought me back into my body, which was very painful, but also the alternative of yeah. being disembodied, you know, like, so it was a really, it was like being born, like really birth is painful and violent and traumatic. And I had to be reborn into my own body, but I sensed that I had to lean into that process and not shy away from it. So yeah, so the, the mothering component was critical. And then finally, mind body techniques like yoga has been really important for me, mm. yoga and meditation. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So what advice would you give to someone who maybe wants to start diving in and start exploring their own sexual assault through writing? What are some tips that you would offer or some ideas to get them moving in that direction? Yeah, it's hard to answer that question from a super general perspective right. because everyone's in a different place. Right. Um, yeah, with their readiness and just on the emotional level, on the craft level, I yeah. could talk all day, Yeah, <laughs> you know, like how to deal with hot material. Yeah. And that's something I specifically teach and mm -hmm. I, I do work with writers. I do book coaching and manuscript development. So that's something that I work with a lot in my professional life. But I think it's important to acknowledge yeah, that there is a personal and emotional aspect to this and that it's different for everyone. And what's safe for me might not be safe, you know, for someone else in terms of their readiness to work with 
very traumatic material. Yeah. And so I think the first thing is to know where you're at and also to be open to the possibility, like you said, that you might be okay with it one day and not the next. Yeah. You know, and sometimes it might be too much to go back into that space when we're doing creative writing and we're working with memory we're actually using the power of imagination to re-enter, you know, a stream of time. And so, you know, we hear the phrase re-traumatization or yeah. is it re-traumatizing? Right. And I think that's kind of what people are talking about. Like, is that going to be re-traumatizing to go back to that space? And, you know, for me, I found ways to work with the material that that I, I feel very strongly were actually ended up being healing instead of re-traumatizing. Right. You know, that's not to say that it was always a walk in the park or that people shouldn't be careful. But just one last thing I would add to that is that there's a researcher at the University of Texas at Austin. His name is James Pennebaker. Mm -hmm. And some people might be familiar with his work. He's a psychologist and a he it's linguistic studies and psychology is, mm -hmm. is his focus. And he does a lot of research around expressive writing for healing. Mm. And he, although he doesn't, as far as I know, his work hasn't encompassed constraints in the way that I'm talking about literary constraints and techniques and devices that we bring to the page to transform this material. But he does talk about a specific study that he did and a, an exercise that he uses for writing to heal. It's a four-day exercise mm. where you write for 15 minutes or 15 or 20 minutes a day it's iterative and it is only four days. Like he's very specific about the fact that this doesn't go on and on, you know, oh. it's finite. But what he talks about is that for the people who, for whom this exercise tends to be the most profound and effective, it's because over the course of the four days working with it, they're beginning to do what we as creative writers understand as craft, which is that they're including different points of view and using dialogue, you know, mm -hmm. and kind of turning the situation over and looking at it from different angles and directions. And, you know, and I, I think that's so fascinating because it tends to underscore the idea that where the healing for us as humans really happens in the writing process mm -hmm. isn't just through the recording of it. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to write this down. This happened to me. And now I'll have a different relationship to it. But it's it's through crafting it. Yeah. You know, it's through sculpting it and crafting it and carving it mm -hmm. into something that's more than the sum of its parts. And and I think you step away from that process and you look and it is very empowering. And you say, look what I made. Yeah. You know, I made that. And then your experience for me, and there is a lot of research around this, the lived experience, it's not like you've erased it, but the thing you made is now it supersedes it it's closer and more important than the lived experience. It becomes a facsimile and it's the thing that you made and it's the beautiful version, you know? Not to say that it's not true and that the bad things didn't happen, but when you make something beautiful out of those bad things, that alters you. You are listening to Recognize Our Power. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. And my guest is Janine Houlette. We will be right back after this break.
Welcome back to Recognize Our Power. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace, and we are talking with Janine Ouellette. I don't know if you workshop this or in your in your pro, in your MFA program or not. Like, what was your experience? You know, when you brought that to different groups or people that you were working with, sometimes people are like, "Well, too much, too much." So, I guess I'm curious to hear what your own experience was of, of bringing that material to different writing groups or or your MFA program to see how that material was handled. I love I love that you're asking that. I think people do need to be aware, you know, when you're mm-hmm. writing on um, this kind of material that aversion can happen in certain situations mm-hmm. when we're I mean and you're you're talking specifically about like the literary process, right? right? Of, yeah. And, and I I did not find that. I found the material to be, by and large, really well-received. Mm-hmm. Um, I chose carefully the advisors that I worked with. Right. And I will say that reading it out loud for the first time in a large group setting, in my MFA program, we had student readings mm-hmm. every I was in a low residency MFA program. So in every residency, there would be a student reading and it was mm-hmm. like kind of competitive to get a slot. You had to go stand in line and right. sign up really early, et cetera. <laughs> but I was like, definitely, I'm going to do that. That's a really important part of my experience right. here. And during that time, the piece Tumbleweeds that I talked about earlier mm-hmm. had been selected by Joyce Carol Oates as second place winner in the December yeah. Literary Journal Contest. And I really, and I had written it while in my program, and I really wanted to read that first section. It was exactly five minutes, like I could make it fit, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. I, and I wanted to share that. And I I have to say that it was a really different thing to put it into print and send it to a journal than to stand up and share it in, a, right. in this large group setting. I was almost like hysterical. Like I was so scared. I was yeah. shaking. I... I could barely breathe. And and I remember thinking, what is going on? Because I've I had by this time given lots of readings and uh-huh. I had and I just I used my meditation and you know those mind-body techniques to kind yeah. of observe myself. It's like I couldn't make it stop, but I could just sort of observe. It's like, oh, you're very anxious. Like this is really scary for you, you know, kind of like a, a mother would talk to a child. Okay, yeah. this is scary. It's okay, though. You know, yeah. it's okay to be scared and you can still go up and read it. And, you know, and I, I I barely remember like giving the reading, but I do remember people kind of swarming up to me afterward when it was all over yeah. in the in the evening. I was just, you know, yeah, when as everyone was leaving and, it, and I realized, oh, I'm so glad I did that. <laughs> yes. So can you talk a little bit about what your process was like with getting this to a publisher? I know a lot of publishers are really hesitant to publish incest memoirs because of the harm that comes to a child. And yeah, can you just talk about what your process was like finding your your publisher? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And right before I answer that question, yeah. there's something... And it's related, so it's kind of bridging the two questions. Yeah. But this idea of like um, workshopping it and people's reactions, I will say that part of what I practice as a writer and I teach it when I teach writing is, and I mentioned it earlier, this technique, writing hot, cold, Yeah, that it was really important to me 
to present the the most painful material, which was the early childhood yeah. sexual abuse by my stepfather in a way that was highly aware of the reader, yeah. you know? And so in these situations, often the reality is that less is more. Like, you don't need very much on the page. Yeah. And I think that learning how to do that was really key. You know, yeah. like, you can use implication and you can use a lot of devices that, you know, I don't want my work to be assaultive to a reader. Right. And and it doesn't need to be, mm-hmm. you know. So so that was really important to me to treat that material with tremendous care mm-hmm. while still getting at what was true. You know, I, I wasn't interested in, for example, protecting my stepfather. Yeah. But I was interested in protecting the reader. Yeah. So I just wanted to say that. But even still, um, you know, there are a lot of things that are on various lists of like things that an agent or publishers just don't really ever want to see, <laughs> you know, and sometimes it's for marketability reasons mm-hmm. and it can just be so harsh. Yeah. But definitely the incest memoir is one that comes up. Yeah. And those, you know, don't, don't bother lists. <laughs> and, and I knew that, like mm-hmm. I was well aware of that in the swim of, of mm-hmm. literary stuff for a long time. And I was like, well, I don't know what to say. It's the book I need to write. This is, the book that, you know, I had to get out of myself. Cheryl Strayed talks about that mm-hmm. uh, with her first book that it was, she says, beating in her chest like a second heart mm-hmm. until she finally finished it. And I felt similarly like I, if this book was going to have an impact on every other thing I ever wrote if I didn't just get it out. Yeah. So anyway, so when it was done and I started to shop it around, it went through a few iterations and... Mm-hmm. Originally, it was a little bit more. Um, it was a little bit more linear. It was still really fragmented, but mm-hmm. in a more chronological order. And I got a lot of really good. Like I'd I'd get requests for the full manuscript, and agents would say, "I really love the voice, but it's non traditional, and I'm mm-hmm. not sure mm-hmm. how to market it." Yeah. You know, if it if it, if it had like a more traditional narrative arc. So then I decided to novelize it. Like I'm going to make this into a novel. Like mm-hmm. Dorothy Allison did that. I can do that. Yeah. That's going to be really cool. <laughs> yeah. So I tried that, and it got a little traction. Like it was a finalist in the Autumn House Fiction Contest in yeah. 2018. Like I knew that it was not terrible. I was like, well, yeah, maybe I can find representation for this. And this agent who I really would have loved to work with because it was at the Francis Golden Literary Agency. And um, yes, a lot of my heroes there, including Dorothy. And uh, she asked for the full. She loved the sample pages. And then she wrote back to me. And remember, I was I was pitching this as fiction. Yeah. And there was some fiction in that version, but mm-hmm. not this stuff. This stuff yeah. is not fiction. Yeah. <laughs> and and she said exactly what you said at the, you know, in this question. She said, you know, I just it's really hard for me to see such a young child be abused that way so early in the book. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, yeah, that was also really hard to live. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yes, I, I hate to see that yeah. too. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, but you know, unfortunately, that's non-negotiable. Like, yeah. you know, and so, and that was a lesson to me that I would not try to present it as fiction. Yeah, you know, that I, I was like, I'm going to have to go back to treating it as a memoir. And so, ultimately, not long after that, I 
went back to the drawing board and I took it apart again and I put it back together in the, you know, close to the version that you see that was mm -hmm. published. And I made the decision that I would approach indie presses, you yeah. know, that for this book, I would have just more, it just felt, I, it was my instinct. It was like, I had only really tried maybe five or six agent queries. Oh, wow. Yeah, I hadn't really, yeah. you know, I think those who are, who are writers know, like, usually they say like, 50s a minimum probably 100 like if you're really going to be looking for an agent you need to kind of buckle up and oh, you know, yeah. be ready for the oh, long haul yeah. and I didn't do that I but it but it wasn't like as a result of you know giving up it really was yeah. an instinct that this book is going to have a home with an indie press mm -hmm. you know it just it and so it the minute that I did that the first press that I sent it to because their submission window was open and it yeah. looked like, oh, they do stuff. This fits their nonfiction with Split Lip, my publisher, the nonfiction category for them is called nonfiction hybrid, you know, and it's just like, okay, well, that's what this is. So I think, you know, we'll fly that up the flagpole, you know, and then I got my <laughs> offer um, yeah. Yeah, very quickly. That's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So you're working on a novel now, where are you at in that process? Can you share a little bit about, you know, what your novel's about and yeah, where you are with that right now? Yeah, I, uh, it's, it's a novel that I started before I entered grad school. And it's oh, actually wow. the reason that I applied to grad school and wanted to go is I, I wanted to finish this manuscript. And what happened is that while I was doing that, I was also writing these memoiristic pieces because I wanted to be publishing short work while I was in grad school and the novel didn't lend itself to that. Yeah. But then the short work started to add up, you know, to and and I realized um that I that I wanted to switch gears and there was a an advisor also who I particularly wanted to work with who I felt like this uh my memoir material was a much better fit for him. Mm. So I set the novel aside you know, like halfway through grad school. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and interestingly, back when I was querying that handful of agents for the part that burns, mm -hmm. a couple of them were like, yeah, I'm not sure I, I can sell this, but if you have anything else, you know, and yeah. then I would like describe to them the yeah. novel and they were like, oh yeah, that sounds like a, probably a better fit for my list or I, I know what to do with that. So yeah. when it's finished, send it to me. So like, they're still out there, you know? <laughs> Um, and this novel, it's set in a super idealistic educational community. As, as I, I was a Waldorf teacher for okay. 10 years. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and something goes wrong. Um, you know, there's a, there's an incident with a child. And so this novel really explores the aftermath amongst the adults, you know, like what happens when you have... It, it, you know, and I think, yeah, whenever you have a hyper idealistic closed community, it can happen in churches. It can, it definitely can happen in certain kinds of private school environments. Yeah. And what happens when something goes wrong and people start blaming each other? And mm. so, so I'm working on that now, and and it's changed a lot since back then. And so it's really exciting to be returning to it because yeah. the world has changed. I've changed. And I think my relationship to the material, when I first started that novel, I was kind of like fresh out of my teaching mm -hmm. career and I think still kind of processing a lot yeah. of, you know, real life stuff. 
And now it's much more, I, I feel like it's much more of a novel. Yeah. 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 That's exciting. Can't wait to read that when it comes out. Kind of wrapping things up. Is there, is there anything else important that we didn't touch on today that you feel like is important for our listeners to know, or whether it's about writing yourself, the process? I guess it's an opportunity for me to say that um, writing, writing memoir, writing about your life always presents challenges in terms of real life. It's not Mm -hmm. just an art, you know, you also are a person and you're living and some of these experiences that you're writing about were shared with other people and those people, you know, may have their own thoughts and feelings Mm -hmm. about the experiences I'm reading an advanced copy of Maggie Smith's memoir right now, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. Oh, wow. So I have an event coming up with her um, Mm. as part of her book lunch. And so, um, and she talks a lot about that. Like, there Mm. is no omniscient narrator. Mm -hmm. You know, in a memoir, there is no omniscient narrator. And she talks about how this isn't a tell-all, it's a tell-mine. Yes. You know, yeah. and I and I think, yeah, right. Um, and then even then, when we say it's a tell-mine, it's like, mine isn't stable. Like the memory, mm. memory, human memory is, is, is famously fallible. And yeah. so really, it's just a tell, like one version of mine. Yes. You know, it's like, it's so imperfect. Yeah. And... So I think that, you know, kind of reconciling that and making peace with it is really important. And then as a part of that, just recognizing, I remember Dorothy Allison telling me, you know, it's going to be hard. This is going to be really hard. And she's a really gruff, like, she's just so fantastic. (laughs) And this super gruff, you know, character. And so she said it much more, uh, you know, I don't know, kind of rough and tumble yeah Yeah. you know it's gonna be hard for you it's gonna hurt your health it's gonna you know really and I thought wait I is it you know but you know she was right it was really hard yeah I don't I don't have a close relationship with my mom but she has kind of come in and out of my life Mm -hmm. all my life but she's kind of like showed up a little bit and then kind of disappeared which I she hasn't said it's because of the book but I Mm. there's I don't know <laughs> yeah. So the timing seems to indicate that. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is that we think, oh, me too, and like that we're in a different place and that it's okay to we've we've been empowered to tell these stories. But in fact, that's not really true. And there's been and if anything, now we're facing like there's just a lot of backlash. I think I in it I just to be very clear in no way am I dissuading anyone ever right. from telling your story if anything I'm saying while no one has to do this or should ever feel pressured mm-hmm. to come forward those who do like I just want to say I I see you I appreciate mm-hmm. you you know there is risk and there's sacrifice but I know that the women who did that for me changed literally changed my life you know like i said at at the beginning with um ellen bass and laura davis with the courage to heal and dorothy allison and that's those aren't certainly the only ones but the main ones that just opened a door that that changed everything so those who are able to do it if you're able to do it i would just say i just really commend those who have yeah for whom it's safe 
I guess is what I'm trying to say to do it. It's just a thanks in advance because I think yeah. we just can't know whose life is going to be opened up. Yeah. Yeah. People that are writing about this are really helping in a lot of ways because we're just we're like opening the floodgates for that really but also yeah it's it's very it's traumatic and it's hard and you know I have physical stuff from from my from sharing my story and it's yeah being in my body on a day-to-day basis can be very very challenging as a, as a survivor and you know for me there was there was just like from a very young age, I was like, I have to get this story out. I have to tell it, tell it, tell it. And it's almost like there's like, there's nothing that's going to stop me from getting this story out there for better or worse. Um, yeah. So anyway. Well, no, I, I I think that I had that too, even though I didn't know how and I had yeah. to, I had to go, certainly had to go through the paces uh, because, because being a professional writer from such a young age, right. that complicated things, yeah. to be honest, because it yeah. was like, oh, but this has to be like of a certain caliber and it has to, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's complicated. Like yeah. I had a professional, that reputation isn't the right word, but like identity you yeah. know, that I needed it to fit within. Yeah. So like, I just didn't write anything that yeah. wasn't, it didn't happen after I was like 18 years old. It just right. didn't go there ever. But I was like engaging with it and I had to write it and I wish that that were more understood. Like my my older sister and I are wired really differently. She's not mm-hmm. in the book by her request. And mm-hmm. for me, I, I if I couldn't write about this, if I couldn't own this, if I couldn't make it mine mm-hmm. and make it public, I could not like be a whole human being. Right. You know, it's yeah. not it, like I said, it was non-negotiable. I had to do it. So. I had to do it to live. You yes. Know? <laughs> and I guess I don't I don't know that everyone understands Dan's, that. Yeah, yeah, that imperative. Like this isn't like I, I wouldn't necessarily choose this, but I have to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's when I started writing my when I started I mean, my manuscript's not done, but when I started writing twelve years ago, yeah, it was like a freight train. I took it to my writer's group and I was like these people are validating what happened to me and it's, I'm hearing that my story needs to be told. And um, that, yeah, it was just, that was so important for me. So, so where can people find you? Yeah. um, Well, I, I have a website and it's just my name. So (laughs) uh, unfortunately for people, my name has a lot of letters in it, but if it's in the show notes or something, it is. Yes. yes, Yes. Spelled wrong more often than right, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and I I teach, so people can find workshops and courses and and previous work, links to published work and stuff on the website. Awesome. And then also on the website is the link to my Substack, which you mentioned in my bio, yeah. which does it's devoted primarily to the craft of writing. So I talk a lot about the different techniques and things that you asked about today. Um, that are specific to writing about trauma. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll link in the show notes to all your socials and website to find out more about our podcast. Please follow us on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram, or visit our website, www.recognizeourpower.com. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. If you have an extra few seconds, please leave us a review to help the algorithm. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. I'd like to thank my guest today. Be sure to check out our show notes and website, www.recognizeourpower.com. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. This podcast is produced by Three Wire Creative.